and his story of Quaker beginnings in Cumberland in the far north of England. John Bernier was a 22-year-old farmer there in Cumberland when George Fox and some other Quaker ministers passed through for the first time in 1653. He and a group of others were convinced of the Quaker message and began to meet for worship and adopt Quaker plainness in, in dress and, and in speech. And in those first years of the movement, Quaker convincement really turned people inside out and turned their world upside down. The light was really deconstructing the socially constructed self and the world that one constructs through the teaching of one's elders and teachers and seeing oneself and one's world in a completely new way. But it was a harrowing process. And Bernier describes it in his memoir in an endless stream of biblical images that he draws from all over the Old and New Testaments. Okay, I'm afraid we've fallen prey to my vice of always wanting to cram a few more uh, early Quaker quotes in, and I'm afraid we may have come up with something that is too small to read now. If you can read, read along, but I will be reading it aloud as I go um, from here. So here's how Bernier describes those first days of their Quaker convincement after Fox and the others had passed through. The day of the Lord that makes desolate had overtaken us, and the fire and sword that Christ brings upon the earth, by which he takes away peace, had reached us. He's referring there to uh, uh, Matthew 10, verse 14, where Jesus says, I bring not peace but a sword. And he talks about how, how his message is going to divide families and, and friends. So he's talking about a sword of division, not a sword of, of violence. But the crisis uh, that, that, that the gospel message brings and that the, the teaching of early Quaker prophets brought upon all kinds of people. Like many other early friends, Bernier uses uh, very well the, the story of, of Israel's exodus from Egypt as, as a template for understanding their liberation passage and liberation struggle. He writes, deep were our groanings and our cries unto the Lord, which reached unto him. And here he's, he's echoing uh, Exodus 2, where, where uh, the Israelites groaned under the Egyptian bondage and cried out. In verses 22 and 23 of Exodus 2, we read, out of slavery, their cry for help rose up to God, and God heard their groanings, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It seems that early Quaker worship in those first years was full of not just quaking, but also groaning and sighing. It uh, occurs to me, I'm glad that people picked up on the quaking instead of the groaning, and we 
We're called the Quakers instead of the Groaners. Can you, can you imagine us talking about Groaner process today? <laughs> so it's the idea is that you have to sort of call God into the, into the process. Cry up to the Lord for help. Groan. They're also drawing, however, on, on, on Paul's uh, words in Romans 8, where he describes the sighing and groaning that apparently took place in early Christian worship as well, with the Spirit uh, interceding with them, with sighs too deep for words. Paul's also connecting that in Romans 8, a groaning in solidarity with the rest of creation, which uh, eagerly awaits the revealing of the children of God. So early friends groaned in solidarity with the Israelites in, in bondage in Egypt, with the early Christians in their worship, and with the rest of creation, through the Spirit of God working through them. But help was slow in coming. He writes, our hearts were unstable like water, the waves going over our heads. He writes how God was weaning them from, from all the comfort and help that they thought they could draw from the world. He writes, we began to forsake all on both, on both hands, seeing the emptiness of all, the glory and vanity and the pleasure of the world, and the dead image of profession, by which he meant doctrinaire religion, professed religion, formal <clears throat> religion. And to make matters worse, as they met more often, they were mocked and abused by their neighbors and families and friends, just as Jesus had warned. And when they witnessed to their new faith, local uh, church members scorned them and, and accused them of heresy for following uh, a light within he writes, in this weak state we were beset on every hand and greatly distressed, tossed and afflicted, as poor Israel were when the sea was before them and the Egyptians behind, and their hope seemed so little, and they looked for nothing but death. I'll come back to the passage in Exodus that he's referring to here. We heard a little bit of it from Judy yesterday afternoon. I was astonished to hear our thoughts converging for this, for this yearly meeting. But first, let us continue his story a bit further. He writes that their problem was that they hadn't yet found true striving, which is out of self, as he puts it. Fortunately, more Quaker ministers arrived eventually and gave them further instruction in Quaker waiting worship. As he describes it, they came to direct us in what to wait and how to stand still, out of our own thoughts and self-strivings, in the light that doth discover. Perhaps there was more technique to early Quaker worship than we are aware of today. This council began to help them. He writes, we got some degree of staidness in our minds, 
which before had been like the troubled sea. And a hope began to appear in us, and we met together often and waited to see the salvation of God. The wonderful power from on high was revealed among us. And as they met more often, he writes, great dread and trembling fell upon many, and the very chains of death was broken, and the prisoners of hope began to come forth. <clears throat> and as they grew stronger, they also grew bolder in their witness. They began to draw others away from the state-sponsored parish church and the teaching of the local enfranchised clerical class, which began to draw more trouble their way. As he puts it, the lamb and his followers began to strike at the kingdom of the beast, which, quote, made him begin to rage and stir up his instruments to oppose the Lord's work. And the beast and his followers began to war and whipping and scourging and prisoning and spoiling of goods, slandering the way of truth, calling his light natural, insufficient, a false guide. Bernier's clearly using language of the Lamb's War here, uh, imagery drawn from the book of Revelation, which uh, we'll get to again uh, on Thursday morning in this series. But the Lamb's War always begins as an inward struggle and then begins to move outward through personal lifestyle changes and a wider social witness. I was struck yesterday, Jay's comment, that uh, uh, the first steps towards that uh, witness with the lobster boat were the hardest and scariest parts. And that's where we really begin to put our house in order and later steps where you can begin to act out of the peace that you've found within become actually easier even though they're outwardly more conflicted perhaps. But this morning I want to focus more on Bernier's key description of their condition both before and after the Quaker spiritual directors, we might call them, had arrived. It's a powerful paradigm of answering the call to radical faithfulness in our spiritual practice, in our lifestyle, and in our wider witness. He compares their experience to that of the Israelites at the banks of the Red Sea, as you've already noticed. You'll recall that Pharaoh finally released the Israelites from slavery but after they had headed out into the wilderness, Pharaoh changed his mind, hardened his heart once again, and sent an army of chariots out into the wilderness after them. So we pick up the story in the 10th verse of Exodus 14. It's no bigger. <laughs> Sorry. I'll read it. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, and they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? 
What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone, and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to keep still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. But you lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the Israelites may go into the sea on dry ground. These Israelite complaints to Moses reveal that sarcasm is not a modern invention. <laughs> Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Of course, we all know that Egypt was a deeply necrophilic empire. Maybe all empires are. They utilized their slave labor to build the pyramids, those monuments to the dead pharaohs. And of course, we know their advanced techniques of mummification, etc. But there's also great human truth in their complaint. Any of us that has trod the path of liberation out of addiction or other forms of human bondage knows how we may very well look longingly back upon that former life as wrong and as unfruitful as it was and dearly want to go back at some points or another. And that's the acute moment that Bernier describes of himself and his friends when they were becoming local pariahs, facing rejection and hostility from family and friends, neighbors and employers. That's the Egyptian chariots bearing down from behind. The sea in front of them was their impasse in worship. They hadn't found that place to stand, how to stand still out of their own thoughts and wills, where the light reveals everything and gives strength to make the changes that are required and to face serious opposition. That clearly relates to Moses' answer to the people. Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. The, Lord, the Lamb's war begins and proceeds as we stand still and see God's deliverance, where we let the Lord do the fighting for us. Moses, of course, had been learning this great truth from the day that he stood still in front of the burning bush and answered his, his call 
to radical faithfulness. And he had, at every step along the way, let the Lord do the striving and let the Lord's power work through him. Now he's trying to teach this lesson to his people. The paradox of the story, of course, is that now, <laughs> just as Moses has imparted this great spiritual truth, the Lord snaps at him, saying, Why do you cry to me? Tell them to go forward. But you lift up your staff, stretch out your hand across and over the sea, and divide it, that the Israelites may go into the sea, into the sea on dry ground. I liked Judy's image of you, you might have to go up to your nostrils before, uh, <laughs> before the way begins to appear. There's a powerful paradox here that standing still becomes the way forward. That's the place where we begin to see the path in front of us. That's the place that reveals what we need to do and where we need to go. And it's the lesson we learn at every step along the way. Coming back to that place of standing still and letting the light open the way to us. And also give us the strength and courage to take those next steps. It's worth noting briefly along the way that early friends didn't bother themselves with our modern questions of, did Moses really part the waters of the Red Sea? Those historical critical questions were not yet on the horizon of their 17th century world. But they didn't read the Bible so much literally as existentially. They, they read the stories recorded as history in the Bible and let it unlock the mystery as it was revealing and revealed in their own experience, in their own hearts. And that's always the most important way to read the Bible. And they found the struggles of, of the ancient Israelites and the early Christians replayed in their own experience and allowed them to hear and interconnect the, the stories in, in new ways. We can learn these lessons on an individual level, but what Bernier is describing here is the way in which they were experiencing the birth of a people in the passing through the Red Sea, just as the Israelites passing through became the birth of a new people. The Hebrew word for Egypt, Mitzrayim, may have its root in the Hebrew verb Mietz, which means to squeeze, to press. That Israel was squeezed and oppressed as slaves by their Egyptian captors. Rabbi Arthur Waskow translates the word for Egypt, Mitzrayim, as based in that verb, Mietz, and he calls it a narrow place. 
And as Egypt passes, as Israel passes out of that narrow place, they're also passing through the birth waters of the Red Sea. It's the birth of a new people, a people unlike anything the world had seen before. And as these early friends reflected on their experience and their liberation struggle in light of, of the Hebrew story, it's again the birth of a people, a people unlike anything the world had seen before. But we know that we can't just inherit that story. We have to pass through those waters and be reborn and reformed as a people in each new period of history. And the, Moses, the words of Moses still ring very true, it seems to me. Do not be afraid. Stand firm. And see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. And as we stand more resolutely in that moment of crisis, the way forward does appear. And we find ourselves passing through the sea on dry ground somehow. And moving out of yet another necrophilic empire into a radically new life. Tomorrow, we'll follow the stories of early seekers, Sarah Jones, Sarah Blackborough, and Francis Howgill, and how they learned to stay home with Jacob.